Lord Jesus, our gracious, gracious, mighty God, we love you, we love you, we love you, God, with every, everything that's in us, God, we love you today. You're so mighty, you're so good, you're so great, you're so holy, you're so pure, you're so faithful. We love you, we love you, we love you, we love you, Jesus. I worship you, my God, I worship you, my God. Amen. While you're standing today, I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter number 26. Matthew chapter number 26. I'm going to read beginning about page number 62, verse number 62, rather. I uh, never cease to be amazed in life at uh, my God. I don't know how you feel about it, but one statement that I make oft, especially to new converts, is that if they'll allow it to be so, and they will stay in tune and sensitive with Him, that living for God is one of the greatest adventures that you could ever possibly experience. He enhances life. He makes sense of life. And He excites life. Amen. He has and does it in such a way that if you're not looking for Him, if you want to be an obtuse creature, you won't see God anywhere. But if you are sensitive to Him and you get to know Him, honestly, you can see God in everything. And that's where the adventure begins. And uh, the second thing that never ceases to amaze me, honestly, is God's people. Uh, what a resilient group of people because we have such a powerful God. Aren't you glad for the everlasting arms that's underneath every last one of us? Isn't He a wonderful God? What a, what a Savior. What a King. What a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I never, ever cease to be amazed at Him and at the people that love Him in spirit and in truth. So I want to begin reading this afternoon. In verse number 62, chapter 26, again, thank God for all the kindness shown me by everybody. It is so good to see Sister Reynolds from British Columbia. This is a wonderful woman of God. She is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful lady. And her husband is a wonderful, wonderful man of God. And I'm so honored that... And this is their camp meeting that's going on. And I don't know how in the world... They're probably all lost in the woods up there, sister, without you. They probably don't even know where the tabernacle is. But anyway, we're glad you're here today. Praise the Lord. Okay, verse 62, Matthew 26. And the high priest arose... And said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, 
the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. And let's ask that our wonderful God would speak again to us in our every single heart, mind, and soul. Lord Jesus, there is no question how much we need you and love you and appreciate you. God, we're asking that the word of the Lord would have free course today into the hearts and minds and souls of your people that you've called by your name. And every soul that you've gathered in this house that does not yet know you or perhaps used to know you, Lord God, according to your gracious kindness, would you claim or reclaim them this morning? In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen, amen. God bless you so much. You may be seated. Thank the Lord for His abundant mercies. In uh, the text that we have read today, we are finding Jesus in the uh, middle of what is surely one of the greatest travesties of justice for all time recorded anywhere, any place. It is the trial of Jesus Christ. There was nothing about this quote-unquote trial that was correct. It really, truly was a farce of unbelievable dimensions. The vast, vast majority of it was carried out completely contrary to the law by the which he was supposed to be <clears throat> being judged by. One thing that was taking place was that this trial was taking place at night, which was contrary to the law. I don't know exactly why that would be, except maybe that God knows that night for the most part was made for sleeping and that he wanted people in the course of making judgments to be as alert as possible. Perhaps it is also because there is certain times, depending on the situation or the physical condition of the individual, a certain moroseness or melancholia that can come on individuals at the night time, but for whatever reasons and purposes known only to God, he wanted judgment to be rendered in the daytime. And this trial was held at night contrary to his admonition and his commandment. And the one that gave the commandment was the one that was being tried contrary to the commandment. Furthermore, the witnesses that they had brought together, paid, bribed, amen, conjured up, drug up, dug up, 
They could not agree in their testimony. One would say one thing, one would say another, but it wasn't jiving together. Here they were judging the one that was in the world and the one who had made the world. And they could find nothing against him. He had killed no one. He had stolen nothing. Rather, he had given everything away. He broke no laws. He fulfilled them completely from the first day of his ministry, fulfilling the law of being baptized by John and going through the ceremonial washing, if you please. He paid his taxes. Even if he had to bring up fish from the bottom of the sea, he would pay his taxes. In one place, it was said, what evil have I done? And they became more and more frantic. Now, finally, the judge in this matter, or the key figure in this situation, was the high priest. He saw that his case was quickly slipping through his fingers. His witnesses didn't have it together. The answers of Jesus were not committing him, amen, to any evil cause. He knew that the case was indeed very weak. And that somewhere, someway, somehow, he would have to bring this thing to full closure. And that with a climatic power, if he was ever going to get this across. And so he finally took over. He began his interrogation. He didn't do it seated. He didn't do it calmly. But he rose up from his chair. And even in those days, these were a people, and this was an august body, that prided themselves on their calmness. They were not like the collected hot-headed rabble that would come from Galilee. They were not like a man, the lowly and the uneducated. These were to be the cool and the calm and the collected, the intelligentsia, those that had insights and powers to see through, amen, the commonplace. But when this man began his interrogation, he arose from his seat. That in itself, no doubt, caused people to look. He's not sitting. He is rising up. And there is an unspoken message being given that we are going after this very, very earnestly. And so finally in taking over, he said, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he could not draw Jesus out. The coolest, the calmest in that whole body was the one being tried. Because he realized that he was not the one on trial. But everybody in that place was on trial, but not him. Amen. He simply looked back to him, eye to eye, pupil to pupil, and held his peace. I don't know how much this unnerved the high priest, but he finally, and I can just imagine, again, we don't know, we can't picture, we can just try to fathom the inflections of voice. When he said, I adjure thee by the living God, I believe there was emphasis there. There was intent. There was pathos. There was power. He said, I adjure thee by the living God that you tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. 
Now Jesus spoke. And his answer, and I'm telling you, he was and is so sharp. You said it, not me. The testimony was given out of your lips, not mine. But then Jesus continued on. And I don't know if he raised his voice, but I do believe he probably raised his head. And he said, hereafter. And you have to understand that the men that on occasion were sent to arrest him would come back empty-handed. And the only defense they had, amen, for their failure was, you just, you ain't never heard anybody talk like this guy. Now what kind of excuse is that for a non-arrest? Man, the guy just, nobody talks like him. So I can imagine this man's very arresting voice and demeanor. He's already been beaten once. He lifts his chin and he says, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He didn't say, You're going to see me. He said, The Son of Man, whoever that was, there was nothing incriminating nor self-incriminating in his statement. But, again, the power, the intensity, they all knew. And at this moment was when Ananias played his trump card. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. Now, I don't find any blasphemy in what he said, even if he wasn't Jesus Christ the righteous. He just made a statement. They had not time to stop and deliberate and think it through. And the high priest did not want them to take the time to stop and contemplate what they had just heard. Rather, he takes a hold of his priestly garb. He rips it asunder. He says, the man has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of any witnesses? You all have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And in that moment of emotion, and in that moment of trial trickery, here this people followed along. They weren't thinking. They weren't thinking about what they'd heard. They weren't thinking about His good deeds. They weren't thinking about prophetic fulfillment. They were not thinking of their own future. They were not thinking of the future of their children. But in a moment of rash folly, they stood up based on the theatrical power of this high priest, and they said, He is guilty of death. Case closed. It's over. And the long night went on, amen, until finally, after six hours of Calvary's tree, Jesus said, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost. Now, as I've already stated, there was nothing about the trial that could hold water. There was nothing that fit. 
The man was tried and condemned with worthless witness. No real charge. Nothing out of his mouth or anybody else's mouth. Again, he'd done no wrong. He was harmless. He was guileless. He went about doing good. And yet, out of that mockery of a trial, a man, a good man, the best man the world has ever known, was condemned to death. And in eternity, in my mind, the one single moment, the telling tale, the turn of tide, was that split second when the high priest with his office, the high priest with his demeanor, the high priest with his known personality, took his garment and ripped it asunder. That, in my mind, was the theatrical trick that pushed the body over the edge. And that in itself was totally contrary to the law. You were not, as high priest, ever allowed to rend the garment as well as trial by day, as well as mouth of two or three witnesses. So God made it very, very clear concerning priests and priesthood and robes and priestly garments. Amen. A lot of people and most anybody that came to the place, they felt they had must needs because of anxiety and problem and trial. Rend their garment. The priest never had the right to rend their garment. In the book of Leviticus, chapter number 21. Amen. Brother Watkins, read verse number 10. And he that is the high priest he among his brethren. that is the high priest among his brethren. Upon whose head the anointing oil was poured. Upon whose head the anointing oil is poured. And that is consecrated to put on the garment. That's consecrated to put on the garment. Shall not uncover his head. He shall not uncover his head. Nor rend his clothes. Nor rend his clothes. It was contrary to law what that man did under any circumstance, let alone trying the righteous judge of the earth. In Exodus chapter number 39, verse number 23, God went so far as to try to keep their garment from being rent that He wanted built-in resistances to that act. And there was a hole in the midst of the robe, as the hole of a harmajan, with a band around about the hole. With a band round about the hole. That it should not rend. That hole that the priest put his head through, that the robe draped over, there was to be a special band put about that so that the priest was not to take hold of it and rend his garment. There was commandment given that you make the garment in a certain way that it would resist rent. And then there was a 
uh, commandment given that the priest would put it in his heart that he would not rend the garment. It didn't matter the situation. It didn't matter the trauma. It didn't matter the trial. It didn't matter the heartache. It was not allowed the priest to do it. That is the reason in the book of Leviticus, the 10th chapter, we find a man that Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they went into the temple. The Bible said they offered up strange fire. Whatever all that was, and whatever it included, I'm not sure. But I know this. It was strange because God did not want it. Right. And I'm just going to throw this in while I'm at it. Was they offered up the strange fire. Amen. The unstrange fire of Almighty God fell. And the Bible said it consumed them. It devoured them. And then Aaron runs in. And Eleazar, his son, and Ithamar, his other son, they run in. They see their brothers. He sees their son. And the Bible said that he had, Moses had men carry them out in their garments. Now when the fire fell, it consumed the man. It devoured the man. But he never touched the garment. Only God, brothers and sisters, has the ability to deal with the ministry perfectly and never touch the office. And if you get to the place you think your ire and fire is good enough that you can lay your hands on the ministry and not touch the office, you might try it. As for me and my house, God knows how to handle His own brother. Amen. But notice what Moses said to Aaron. He's in. He sees the devoured man. He sees the garments. Here comes Aaron. Here's Eleazar. Here's Ithamar. And Moses turns and says, And Moses said unto Aaron and unto Eleazar and unto Ithamar, his sons, Uncover not your head. Don't uncover your head. That speaks of shaving your head, which was a type, amen, of showing heathenistic grief in those days. Don't uncover your head. Neither rend your clothes. Don't rend your clothes. Lest you die. Lest you die. And lest wrath come upon all the people. Lest wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren... The whole house of Israel bewail the burning which the Lord hath kindled. Let your brethren bewail. Let them weep. Let them cry. But I'm telling you, Aaron, and I'm telling you, Eleazar, and I'm telling you, Ithamar, you're not just anybody. You're priest. You're high priest. Amen, Eleazar. You're going to take your daddy's place. Anybody, everybody can rend their garment, but you cannot rend your garment. Let your brethren bewail. Let your brethren go through it. But you don't. Don't have the right. Don't rend your garment. The rending of a garment, amen, was considered to be the ultimate expression of grief. It was the ultimate expression of sorrow. It was the ultimate expression of absolute, total, bottomless despair when all seemed lost. 
They ripped their garments. Remember, these were not the days you could run down to Walmart and grab a shirt in ten minutes. All garments were handmade and expensive. So when you rent your garments in those days, brother, you'd lost something of value. But at the ultimate time, an expression of grief, sorrow, and despair, such as when Reuben comes back to the pit, hoping to somehow spare Joseph, and he's gone. Reuben rent his garment because he knew how this was going to affect his father Jacob. And how did it affect his father Jacob when they brought him a bloodied colored coat of many colors? The Bible said Jacob rent his garment. Amen. The day they found the cup. Amen. Joseph's cup in Benjamin's sack. The Bible said every one of those brothers got a taste of what it was like to rend their garments. It was an ultimate expression of total despair. When Joshua and Caleb heard the ill report of the ten spies and they could see the people were succumbing to doubt and they were going to lose out in the promises of God. Joshua and Caleb in ultimate despair they rinsed their garments. When Joshua saw the defeat of his people at Ai. He couldn't believe it. He rent his garment when Jephthah saw his little daughter run out of the house knowing she would be a perpetual sacrifice. He rent his garment. Amen. When Josiah heard the words of the law and he realized Israel is tombed. He rent his garment when Ezra beheld. Amen. The transgression of the people. Yet one more time in Israel he rent his garment when more Mordecai heard of the death of all of the Jews at the hand of Haman. He rent his garment and on and on and on. When Job lost his cattle and he lost his sheep and he lost his camels and he lost his asses and he lost his oxen and he lost his children. He shaved his head. He rent his garment. But it's okay, Job. You can do it. And Jephthah, it's okay. And Reuben and Jacob and your brethren and Joshua and Caleb, Mordecai, Ezra, Josiah, even his king, it's okay. You can rend your garment. But Aaron, if you uncover your head, if you rend your garment, you're going to die. Now, why could that possibly be? Aaron's human. That's his boys out there. Eleazar and Ithamar, they're human beings. And then the writer of Hebrews even said, God made it a point to pick every high priest from the sons of men because they're made out of the same mud. And they feel the same feelings and burdens and are compassed about with the same weaknesses. They have feelings. Why was everybody that ever came to an ultimate expression of grief and sorrow and despair able and allowed to rend their garment? But the priest never rend your garment. The only clue 
that I have is that there was nobody in the midst, the length and breadth of all of the people of God that had the privilege that the high priest and then eventually his sons and his son's sons would have of having access into the immediate presence of Almighty God. Jephthah, you're never allowed in the Holy of Holies. Job, I don't think ever even knew there was going to be such a thing. Amen. Mordecai, you're not allowed in there. Josiah, you can't go in there. Uzziah tried it, and it cost him a leprous death. Nobody can go in to the Holy of Holies. No one can come in to where the mercy seat is, where the Shekinah and the glory and the presence of God dwells. You have to understand. Amen. You have to get it. Ezra doesn't get that privilege. Amen. Jephthah will never get that privilege. But only the high priest were allowed immediate access to the presence of God. And can I tell you, anybody that can get into the presence of God should never, ever regard anything as total, unmitigated, endless disaster if God can be felt, if God can be touched, if God can come down. If you can get into the presence of God, you can handle anything. And only the priest were allowed that privilege. Now, I don't understand everything I know about life today, let alone life thousands of years ago. There's a lot of things about David that I cannot figure out. Do you understand? God cut that man a lot of slack. He allowed him to do stuff and get a Bible stuff. I'm not talking about that Bathsheba stuff. He paid through the nose. Albeit, he should have been under a pile of stones somewhere. But he wasn't. And David, I don't understand, could rear up a tabernacle. And unless I'm missing something, if I am, brethren, please point it out to me. The tabernacle of David was a different affair than the tabernacle that had been pitched at Shiloh prior to the ark being taken. The tabernacle of David, there was an altar. There was a labor. But the ark just sat out there in front of God and everybody. And David could come and be in the presence of the ark. And this is the reason, amen, when the glory of God was being poured out on the New Testament peoples and everybody's scratching their head and saying, how on earth did the glory get out from behind the Holy of Holies? They finally said, this is the fulfillment of Amos' prophecy that God will resurrect the tabernacle of David and anybody 
that wants to can get into the presence of God because He's going to pour out His Spirit upon all flesh. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Now I'm just throwing this out because this is, this, is, uh, this is Bible class, okay? You can take your time and go a little slower. Not quite fast enough for some, but anyway, you move on the best you can. It seems to me that Saul and David and Solomon in their 40-year reigns each by the law of hermeneutics the first three kings represented dispensations. Saul's 40-year reign represented the dispensation of law. It started so well and it ended up with a horrid curse. David's dispensation or reign for 40 years represents the church age and the presence and the glory. David understood things about the church age that nobody else did. It was David that instituted music into the worship of Almighty God. Hallelujah. It was David, amen, that, 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 that would speak of being in his presence. That's why in the book of uh, Psalms 16 and 11, read, Thou wilt show me the path of life. Oh, God, you're going to show me the path of life? In thy presence. In your presence. Is fullness of is joy. Is fullness of joy. At thy right hand. At thy right hand. There are pleasures there forevermore. There are pleasures forevermore. Hallelujah. David had a walk. David had an anointing. David had an experience. And I believe, and that's the reason the book of Psalms is so very, very important. The book of Psalms is it to the body of the Bible. What your heart is to your body. Call it the seat of emotions. That's where you feel things. That's where you sense things. And David's whole reign was a type of the church age. I'm glad I know him in spirit and in truth. But I can feel him. I can love him. I can pick up and thank God for his holy word. But brother, this word drifts off the pages into our hearts and our minds and incorporates itself into an experience. If you've got a dry, dusty Bible, it's your fault. The Word of the Lord is alive and powerful. It's not just something you read, you experience it. It is an adventure. If you're bored with your Bible, you're bored with your God, and you're bored with your experience. So David was there. Solomon's reign was a type of the millennial reign. So much glory. So much peace. So much presence. So much power. You say, but the millennial reign of Solomon as type didn't end up so hot. Well, the end of the millennial reign, unless my eschatology is all messed up, ends up with the world being burnt up with fire. And the devil's loose for a season and deceives a third part of the nations. So I think these three reigns are three types. But David, living ahead of his time, where you and I are, he understood the power and the pathos and the importance of being able to be in the presence of Almighty God.
it means something. You know, I know a lot of things are a whole lot easier to preach about than they are to live and experience. That's why we all do so good a job preaching on Job, but I don't want to have to drink from his cup. Hallelujah. But brothers and sisters, nobody has a right to show the ultimate, absolute, total, endless grief of despair and a sense of hopelessness if we can just get into the presence of Almighty God. Underneath us all are the everlasting arms. I'm glad for a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I'm glad for a God that loves His people. That's why in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 15, For we have not a high priest. We don't have a high priest. Which cannot be touched. That cannot be touched with the feeling. Everybody say feeling. He knows how we feel. He knows when we hurt. He knows when we're happy. He knows when we cry. He is touched by the feelings of of our our infirmities. Read. But was in all points tempted like as we are. In every point he was tempted just like you and I. Yet without sin. Yet without sin. Let us therefore. Let us therefore. Come boldly unto the throne of grace. Come how? Come boldly. Boldly? You mean when you're sitting in pain and you're sitting in tears and you're sitting in sorrow? If I can just get into the presence of God. I'll make it. I'll survive if I can just somehow make my way. And the Bible says, come boldly. Hallelujah. Come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? That you may obtain mercy. Obtain mercy. And find grace. And find grace. Grace is the ability. Grace is the ability. Grace is the ability to do the will of God. Hallelujah. When there's great grace on you, the ability to do the will of God cheerfully. Hallelujah. It doesn't matter if it's painful. It doesn't matter if it hurts. It doesn't matter if you don't feel good. If you can get the grace of God on you, you can make it through anything. You can go anywhere. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm telling you today, it's not a time to rend our garments. It's a time to get into the presence of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. Oh, but God. But God is faithful. But what about God? God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. He will not put more upon you than you can bear. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able. What will He do in our behalf? But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. You can bear it. You can bear it. What's the answer? What's the answer? Hallelujah. Is it rending our garments? Or is the answer getting into the presence of God? Hallelujah. It's finding Him and laying hold on Him and saying, God, You're my friend that sticketh closer than a brother! 
If I can just touch you, if I can just feel you, if you can just put your arm around me, if you can just hold me, if you just let me know that you're there. Brother, I'm telling you, He is the comforter of all comforters. He's a friend of all friends. He's the brother that was born for the day of adversity. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In Luke chapter 10, verse number 18. And he said unto them, He said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, I like that. There are some scenes that when I get to heaven, I want to see. There are some incidents I want to see take place. In fact, I've got a list of the top ten things I want to see. If God had shown me ten things right now, I've got a list of the things I'd like to see historically, but then, of course, biblically. You know the first thing I'd like to see right this minute if God had shown me? Number one, the creation. I'd like to see the creation. For one reason, think of all the other questions that would answer. Second, I want to see Calvary. And I've got other things past the top ten. You know what I'd like to see? Meet. Well, God is talking to Sister Ewan last night. She wants to meet David in heaven first and talk to him for a long time. Then she wants to meet Paul second. I'm the same mind. But you know who's in my list, not in the top ten? You know who I want to sit down and talk to? The little Syrian girl that was carried away captive and was handmade to Naaman, the captain of the Syrian host, handmade to his wife. That instead of letting life bum her out and make her bitter and sullen and just be a little witch walking around the, the streets in the house of Naaman, amen, and saying, here's your water! Your room's clean! But somehow, life didn't defeat that little girl. She kept her chin up. She kept her outlook bright. I'm stuck in Syria, but I know a God. And when that poor master of mine, Naaman, you poor thing, you leper, and he told her wife, I wish that my master would go to my home country, Israel. There's a man of God there. He's a prophet of God. And if she go, if he goes see Elisha, there's no telling what God could do for him. I like that kind of spirit. I like that kind of attitude. Life didn't get her down. Life didn't swallow her up. Life didn't steal her testimony. That little girl didn't rend her garment. Some way, somehow, she just kept saying, My God is good. My God is great. This is the world I'm stuck in for now, but I'm going to make the best of it. Hallelujah. So read... Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions. I give you power to tread on serpents and to tread on scorpions. And over all the power of the enemy. And every power of hell, I give you power to walk on top of it. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Whoa. 
Whoa! That's like people say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. I know some people I need to introduce you to. I know people that get up in the morning, the first thing they do is brush their teeth, and the second thing they do is sharpen their tongue. To get ready for the day's work. Don't kid yourself, words can't harm you. They can kill you if you let it. But if you don't let it, nothing, nothing, it's in the good book, nothing, nothing, everybody say nothing, shall in any wise hurt you or harm you. You know how we're going to make that verse come true? By keeping getting back into the presence of God. We've got to get back into the presence of God. You can't wallow in your pity. You can't wallow in your pain. You can't wallow in your hurt. You've got to keep dragging your... God! That doesn't mean we have a carefree existence. Second Corinthians 4, verse 8. We are troubled on every side. We are! Everybody say, we are! Troubled on every side. Yet not distressed. Yet. Though we are troubled, we're not distressed. We are perplexed. We are perplexed about so many things. But not in despair. But somehow there's hands underneath us when we feel like we're going through the free fall. Hallelujah. We're perplexed. But we're in the presence of God. And somehow we don't have to rend our garments. If we can just get into the presence of God. Read Persecuted. We are persecuted! But not forsaken. But never has He forsaken me one time. Lo, I am with you every moment, always, even unto the end of the world, of the age. I'm with you. Read. Cast down. I'm cast down. But not destroyed. But I'm not destroyed. How is that? Because somewhere, some way, somehow, we get into the presence of Almighty God. The veil, the pain, the tears, the sorrows. Somehow. How did God do all this for us? Let's stand. Matthew chapter 27 the trial is over now the high priest has rent his garment with pathos and passion and trial trickery he carried the day against the Lord of Lords he's been led away to be beaten again He's been nailed to the tree. He's been thrust between heaven and earth. People pass by. They mock. They laugh to scorn. Blood and sweat and tears and spit. 
dripped from his face. His back is a plowed field. On his left and his right, before and behind, he's compassed about with mockers and jeerers and laughers. He sees it all. And then, the God-man that never spent one moment without His presence. Him hearing, speaking, doing the flesh whatsoever the Spirit bade Him. His humanity accomplishing whatever the fullness of the divinity in Him bade Him do. He's on a tree now. His hands and his feet are nailed to the tree. His back looks like a plowed field. His visage is marred more than any other. And then, oh no. Oh God, no. Oh no, no. He begins to feel the presence leaving. He's never experienced that before. He's never felt that before. This can't be. Oh no, not this. Not this! But when you die, the Spirit leaves. And now, for the one single moment in His existence, He begins to feel forsaken My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he realized, I have just tasted death for every man. It is finished. And he bowed his head and he let the Spirit go. Verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. What? And behold, the veil of the temple was rent. What was rent? The veil in the temple. The garment of the priest was rent. The veil of the temple. The veil of the temple was rent. In twain. Why would God rend the veil of the temple? So that nobody could ever have to feel forsaken again. And nobody would ever have to feel hopeless again. That nobody would ever have to feel utter, absolute, total, unmitigated despair because God rent the veil of the temple. The glory of God can come out. Amen. It wasn't just for the high priest now, sir. It's for John. It's for James. It's for Peter. It's for Andrew. It's for the 120. It's for the 5,000. 
thousand. It's for the three thousand. It's for those, amen, of nineteen hundred and nineteen oh six and nineteen ten and nineteen fifteen. It's for those of the year two thousand. The veil of the temple is rent, that the glory, the presence of Almighty God can come out. You don't have to feel alone. You don't have to feel forsaken. You don't have to feel like there's no help. You don't have to feel like there's no hope. What's our answer today? We don't give way to negativism. Amen. We get in the presence of God. We don't give way to pessimism. We get in the presence of God. We don't give way to disappointment. We don't give way to crisis. Disaster and sorrow. We get in the presence of God. It doesn't mean when the Bible said, basically, if I can interpolate, the loss of dear, blessed loved ones. Grieve not as others which have no hope. That doesn't mean we don't grieve. But our grief is not like the world's grief. Uh, Our grief, that's why in the New Testament, whenever it speaks of a dead saint in the epistles on, and when Jesus was about to resurrect, it's never, ever, ever referred to as death. It's always sleep. When your children lie down at night to go to sleep, you don't rend your garments. You don't bewail. Why? You have faith, hope, trust, assurance. They're going to wake up in the morning. God says, look, we sleep, but we're going to wake up. Hallelujah, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the sound of the last trump. We may grieve, but not like other people that don't have our hope, that don't have our help, that don't have our strength, that don't have the presence of God like we do in His mercy. We don't need to rent our garments today because He rent the veil that the presence of God would be for everybody in His presence we would find fullness of joy. Let's lift our hands and worship Him. Into the presence of the Lord When I come into the Is there anybody here under the sound of my voice that maybe you'd like to step out where you are and come down to the front? It just seems like we can feel the presence. 
closer when we take steps to show him how much we want him. It really wouldn't be bad if everybody that could would just come up and get in his presence. Yesterday, today, and forever. Come on, sir. 